focus of the talk this evening is uh, not surprisingly on samadhi. The nature of samadhi, its place in our practice. Uh, some of the challenges uh, to samadhi. And then near the end, uh, its relationship to the other core practices that we're exploring in this retreat, namely insight practice, uh, particularly looking into impermanence and dukkha or suffering and anatta, and then that spacious awareness. But the, the bulk of it will be on the nature of samadhi, how we practice it, and the challenges to practicing samadhi, which many of us may consider ourselves experts on. At this point, uh, we've had a whole day to see what works and what doesn't work so well with samadhi. Right? Uh, but basically, um, everyone is doing quite well. I, I say that without even talking with any of you because we often have a criterion for doing well in practice, which is basically continuing. And so I also want to invite you during the talk to consider, to consider, con, continue. There's <laughs> merging, continue and consider, it didn't work. <laughs> so to uh, continue to uh, practice samadhi. So you can keep a certain uh, part of your awareness uh, with your breath. I, I can remember doing a number of uh, samadhi retreats and really enjoying that sense of listening, but also keeping the thread of the practice going. So I want to invite that. Maybe you can even uh, set it up just for a, a moment, see if you can keep that going. Again, it might be 10 or 20% of attention, that's fine. So we explored some already, both in uh, Susie's presentation last night. Do you remember last night? How many days ago was last night? <laughs> okay. Doesn't it feel like at least three or four days ago? <laughs> I think so. So we explored uh, with Susie some last night, and then again in the uh, morning instructions, the fact that we prefer really to use the term samadhi, the English translation concentration, can, because of the connotations of the term, be misleading as to how we actually practice. It can suggest particularly more of a, a striving, focusing, furrowing the brow, clenching the fist, I'm gonna focus sort of emphasis, whereas the really the essence of uh, samadhi practice is this combination of relaxation and persistence or continuation. And so we'll be using the word samadhi and I gave the etymology in the morning of it being something like uh, a sense of uh, bringing together or gathering together. And so we could even think of translations for samadhi as being like gathering. Susie, I think, used the word collecting 
last night. Uh, one translation that's sometimes used is the unification of our mind and heart. Uh, this is uh, from uh, a very good book on samadhi by Richard Shankman. Some of you probably know it. It's actually called Samadhi, the name of the book. He talks about samadhi as unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness. Unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness. And again, it's a, a natural capacity that we all have at certain times, and yet it's not necessarily refined in our, in our culture, you know, in, our, in our educational system. Uh, but it's a very natural quality. I mentioned that animals have, uh, in a sense, uh, a sense of being able to focus very acutely on something, particularly when there's something related to survival, food, danger, and so forth, can be very, very strong uh, focus. And I remember for myself, one of my formative experiences was in college, one of the few times I pulled an all-nighter, I had this experience of being totally absorbed in what I was uh, working on, studying, writing, for hours and hours in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And I stayed up, I think, all night, and as I came into the dawn, it was definitely a, a, a very altered state. And it was quite uh, peaceful, and beautiful and inspiring. And maybe how many of you have had something like that kind of experience at some point? I think it's quite quite common. And so what we're doing here really is we are refining that natural capacity for samadhi with actually age-old practices that in their essence are are very simple. The essence of the samadhi practice is that we simply come back to the focus on one object over and over again. So it's the essence of a, of a simple practice. We don't have to remember much. There's not too much to improvise. We just keep doing the same thing, which has, I think, both a certain uh, beauty and can be at times a little bit aggravating, especially the first day, <laughs> right? But there's something very beautiful about it. Uh, the philosopher Kierkegaard once said that purity of heart is to will one thing. You can see how it unifies our being. There's a way that we simply bring all of our energy and effort and focus just to do one thing over and over again. And there's a simplicity to it, you know. What should I do? We know what to do over and over again. In the teachings of the Buddha, samadhi was central. And there are many repetitions of the understanding that uh, without samadhi, we can't really have insight and we can't come to freedom and to liberation. 
that it's central. In the actual teachings, the, the capacity for samadhi appears on a number of the so-called uh, lists. Many of you know that you know, the, the way the Buddhist teaching got communicated was in many ways by a series of lists, the four this, the five this, the eight this, the, you know, the four noble truths, the four foundations of mindfulness, the seven factors of awakening, and so forth, the five spiritual uh, faculties, uh, the eightfold path, and so forth. And uh, actually, in most of the ones that I just mentioned, uh, samadhi is listed. It's listed in the five spiritual faculties, the uh, five powers, the seven factors of awakening, and in the eightfold path. Where, you know, so it's very, very central. And in the, in the Eightfold Path, as I, as I mentioned this morning, we're really encouraged to develop what's called a Sama Samadhi. And I gave a, a little bit of an account this morning saying that the word uh, Sama is similar to words like summary. And the usual translation is of right concentration, which was a Victorian age uh, translation. And the, the etymology of a word like sama suggests more something like summary or summation. And so I, you know, it would be a better translation to call it mature or complete or realized samadhi. That's the aim. Now also very crucial to see that the hallmark of the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path, which gives the eight capacities to be developed, you know, and most of you remember them. They're two connected with wisdom, uh, what are, what are, I'll call them mature view and mature aspiration, three connected with living ethically, connected with livelihood and uh, living ethically and, and, and speech, skillful speech. And then three connected with meditation, namely uh, uh, mature effort, mindfulness, and then samadhi. And uh, one of the hallmarks of these eight is that they all have to be um, connected together. They're not developed in isolation. You know, I, I mentioned, uh, I think, uh, was it this morning or last night, that the ethical framework plays a role in samadhi, that when we are living ethically, there's a certain peace of mind, which is conducive to the mind settling. When we're not living ethically, we have regrets, we have to, again, maybe figure out who did I tell what to, right? The mind gets very complicated. It's hard to have samadhi. So there's a relationship between all of these, all of these aspects. So there are many uh, forms, as I mentioned in the morning, of samadhi practice. You know, in that text, the Vasudhimaga, there are 40 different objects of possible samadhi practice, including being with the breath, including metta, including the other heart practices. They can be objects of samadhi. And um, probably some of you have sometimes used uh, metta as a form of samadhi practice. I did that in one retreat for five weeks you know, using metta as a way to develop samadhi. 
and it has its own guidelines. It's a little different than being with the breath in some ways because you're repeating phrases, but eventually the phrases drop away and one's just focusing on the energy and feeling of warmth and kindness and that becomes one's object. The Buddha himself in his first training worked with uh, traditional yogic methods of uh, samadhi. That was his original training. And many of you know that he went to the depths of of those forms of training in samadhi and found that they were very valuable, but that they didn't really answer his question of how do we uproot what's responsible for dukkha, for suffering. So in other words, they're not, samadhi is a valuable tool, but in itself, it's not, uh, it's not sufficient for freedom and liberation. And, and yet he brought in, presumably, some of the samadhi practices he had learned and thought that although it's not sufficient for liberation, it is necessary for liberation, but not in itself sufficient. It needs to be brought together with other practices, uh, much like the ones we're doing in this retreat. This is from the Buddha. Samadhi, by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit. I too, before my uh, enlightenment, while I was still a bodhisattva, I mean sort of a, a person on the path to awakening. Uh, Not yet fully enlightened, generally dwelt in this dwelling, meaning he mostly spent his time hanging out much as we did today, just with with samadhi practice. And it can be, you know, again, it can be done with metta, can be done with the breath. I mentioned how in Tibetan tradition, it's often done uh, with eyes open looking at an object, but just keeping the focus on it. It could be a stone, it could be a a letter, it could be an image. And in some traditions it's done with sound. People who do chanting are really following. Some people have chanting as a spiritual path and the continual chanting, sometimes inner, sometimes inner and outer, is a form of samadhi practice. I have a friend who does that, that's her practice. Much of the day, just continuing to keep the chant going. It's a form of of samadhi practice. Generally speaking, there are a few different modes of samadhi, and I'll just mention these in passing. We'll bring this up from time to time. One of them is called uh, kanaka samadhi, and it's a kind of samadhi where we, which we can actually have sometimes in our mindfulness practice or insight practice where the mind is very still and moment to moment we're following phenomena, whether the breath or passing phenomena, but the mind is very still. So we can have samadhi, a deep level of samadhi in our insight practice. And in fact, that's uh, one of the reasons we cultivate samadhi is to come increasingly to have the samadhi when we look at uh, changing phenomena as well as the uh, just one phenomenon or one object. There's also um, a kind of, of samadhi that's uh, named 
in the uh, Vasudhi Maga, which was a very important text for the way samadhi practice developed about 1500 years ago in India. Uh, there's a type of concentration called access concentration or access samadhi, which isn't uh, in the text of the Buddha, but it's become well known. It, it has to do with a way that the mind is very still and able to be uh, with the uh, object, with the focus, with little or no thought, and in an effortless way, just staying with the object. That's a possible goal. And for some, that is the most suitable goal of our practice, because when we get it to that level, then we can turn it to look at changing phenomena and do insight practice with a high level of stillness in the mind. And then there's a third type of samadhi, which is related to the development of what are called the jhanas. Many of you know that term. These are uh, states of samadhi beyond that of access, where there's a kind of um, unification of the knower and known and absorption in the uh, object. And we're not going to be focusing uh, much on that, but I wanted to mention that. And sometimes people develop that particularly in longer retreats. And there, it was taught by the Buddha and it was seen to be of, of uh, value that when you get the samadhi to a very high level, then you bring it to look at phenomena and can see much more easily uh, beyond the habitual patterns of mind. So why is, why is uh, samadhi practice so important? I, I've really suggested that it's part of the package that's, that's um, required to go to the depths of insight and to go towards the depths of freedom and liberation. And it's a, it's a uh, part of our practice that for some of us has not been developed so much. We've developed it some because we can, you know, stay with the breath and track phenomena. But for many of us, it's not an area that we necessarily have focused on as in a retreat like this or even more in a retreat that might focus on samadhi for a week or longer. And for some of us, it's, it's really a capacity that can really be developed uh, significantly more and can uh, result in significant uh, deepenings in our practice. So it can be very valuable. And I think our, part of our hope is that you may be inspired, even though we'll be continuing samadhi practice for the whole retreat, that you may be inspired to keep it going, uh, go to a dedicated samadhi retreat. I think for me, um, I, w I think I was drawn originally when I was practicing, I was drawn to samadhi and I think I have a good samadhi capacity, but I didn't get much instruction. <laughs> and so I think it wasn't always so fruitful. You know, I just was hanging out, just focused on one thing, but I, I don't know what I, I don't think I got good, I don't think I got guidance from the teachers particularly. I don't know what was going on, it was a long time ago. It was a little bit, the first days of people practicing meditation, a little bit like the Wild West. <laughs> so. Uh, but later I had a period where I did uh, really a lot of dedicated samadhi practice, probably for about six years. 
there was a main focus over a six year period and really, really changed things a lot. And I think again, partly valuable in itself, but especially for what we're covering in our second and third parts of the retreat, that is the insight practice and also the opening to spacious awareness that it really seemed to make both deeper insight practice possible and give more stability for this uh, kind of open, spacious, uh, awakened awareness. Samadhi is really necessary to help us uh, more and more cut through our various kinds of uh, conditioning. We need to have that stillness of mind to catch what's coming through as early as possible after it appears to be able to get to more and more subtle levels of conditioning. Samadhi can help tremendously in that way, can really um, help us to see patterns of mind that maybe previously have been beneath the surface, unconscious and so forth. And that helps us then in the inside practice to see these patterns and increasingly see through them and be able to know that they're there. And a lot of the premise of our practice is once we bring something to awareness and have it there and continue to look at it, increasingly we can uh, work through those, those patterns. We can see more and more quickly our repetitive thoughts, our top five or our top 10 uh, patterns of mind, or maybe I should say themes, right? What are your top five or top 10 repetitive thoughts? We can see those more quickly and, and often in the samadhi, we can, we can uh, notice them right when they get triggered and start to see them happening. Sometimes when the mind gets very quiet, we can just uh, be sitting there with not too much going on and experience this little burp in the mind that goes whoop. And we can know, oh, I know that. That was financial reflections number three about to, it was the seed of those financial reflections number three. And I can notice that. And the samadhi can get to a very subtle level of mind where we notice we can identify thoughts with, even before they're, they start forming. We can have the sense of the seeds of them and have a sense of the way that our own thought process gets constructed. It can be really uh, take us quite wonderfully and deeply into the very nature of the mind because of its uh, power of penetration. And so it's a tremendous tool for working with what we might call the automatic mind the conceptual mind, the, con- the conditioned mind. Another capacity of samadhi is that when samadhi is well-developed, we can suppress what we call the hindrances. That when samadhi is well-developed, there may not be much wanting or aversion. We may just be with the object and we It's not that we've worked through the tendencies to wanting or aversion and so forth. 
but we can have a taste of what life is like without them. We can have a taste of what life is like without our habitual tendencies of mind. And this can be of profound power, right? It can be one of the types of experience which inspires us to continue. We can have a sense, oh, look at that. Look what's possible in the mind, amazing, right? And of course we can grasp on it and cling to it and develop spiritual pride and go back and talk about our amazing experiences with our friends. Not not bad in itself, but you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? Um, but we um, we get a taste of what's possible. Samadhi practice can rather quickly give us some very beautiful tastes of practice. Maybe you've even had some some today. Just you know, a taste of of the quiet mind. And there can also be a sense that within this very mind within my mind, consciousness, and so forth, are these incredible resources. It can, it can suggest the power of our own uh, inwardness, we might say. That, and we may, through, even through samadhi practice, know that there are these incre- incredible inward jewels and potential experiences that can make us less excited about looking outwardly and grasping for what we want externally. We can, we can know more and more the potential of our own being to reach uh, depths of understanding and well-being. And that uh, can be a gift of, of samadhi practice. And as I mentioned in the tradition, the main value of samadhi practice is to make possible liberating insight. That's always the aim. It's not to have the experiences of samadhi in, in themselves, but because it's, in that sense, it's a means to an end. It makes possible liberating insight. This is, uh, these are two short passages from the Buddha. Practitioners develop samadhi. A practitioner who, uh, who has samadhi understands things as they are. If you have samadhi, you have the potential to know things as they are. And that's a segue to our second uh, part of the retreat where we're focusing on seeing clearly uh, impermanence, dukkha, her suffering, and anatta, or the nature of the self. These, for the Buddha and for much of Buddhist tradition, are the three main areas of of liberating insight. And so he's basically saying, samadhi makes that possible, makes those insights possible. Without the practice of samadhi, without attaining to calm, without one-pointedness, that one should enter and abide in the emancipation of the mind, that cannot be. Basically saying without samadhi, we can't get to the freedom of the mind. This is a strong statement.
So again, how to practice samadhi. We've looked at a, at a variety of ways. We've looked at the um, ways of practicing with the breath, with different, with different objects. We've looked in the morning instructions at the general guideline that we don't attend to the thoughts at the level of naming them and so forth, but we keep on working with attending to the object, keeping on coming back. Again, unless there is some very strong experience that has considerable duration. And this would, again, this gave the example of maybe there's been a loss, we haven't had time to process it, and grief comes up in the retreat. That sometimes happens, right? That would be an example where it would actually be wise to attend to the grief. We let go of the samadhi practice if that comes very strong. Nature of grief often is it it doesn't, uh, it kind of comes and goes. And so we might stay with it and then it abides and we go back to the samadhi practice. That is not so common in samadhi practice for something to happen like that. And so this may may not arise for you. We're not talking about uh, persistent uh, thoughts about some unresolved issue. That's not what we're talking about. If, if you have thoughts about, persistent thoughts about unresolved issues, you can say, thank you. At the end of the retreat, we will take a little bit of time, the last morning, and we will bring our incredibly deep in mind and look at this unresolved issue, maybe take some notes, have a journal. And in other words, we're saying, yes, it's important, <clears throat> but not now. We say that to a lot of what's going on in the mind. <clears throat> yes, I appreciate you, not now. Yes, thank you for your view, not now, later. And so we keep on, we keep on saying that. And that can be very, very skillful. As we deepen in samadhi, certain qualities of the mind start to get stronger. And in the uh, tradition, these are identified as what are called the five jhanic factors. Like certain factors will tend to get stronger as we develop samadhi practice. The first of this, first of these is called um, vitaka, and that is the capacity to connect with the object. Our capacity to connect more and more with the breath or with whatever we're focusing on sound gets stronger as we develop samadhi. We can more quickly and more easily uh, connect with the object and, and really uh, be with it. And that will, that will develop very naturally. A second quality that develops is called vichara. And this is the capacity to stay with the object, to stay with the breath, to stay with what we're focusing on. In fact, in in the Tibetan tradition, the whole area of developing samadhi is called the capacity to stay. (laughs) The word is, there's a, some one of the maps is called the elephant path, also understood as the nine stages of staying, (laughs) right? That we learn how to stay with the object, right? And we learn how to uh, develop the samadhi so we not only connect with the object, but we stay more and more with it. You know, that we can have more and more continuity 
with the breath. You know, this is part of what develops simply by, simply by returning. A third quality that's, that's uh, identified is the quality of piti, which is sometimes translated as joy or rapture, that as samadhi develops, there can be a certain uh, pleasant quality that develops in the body. When we actually stay with a long time, it's actually not always pleasant. Sometimes the energy gets roused with samadhi. Some of you know that. And that's a natural part of the, of the development. And it mostly, especially when it first comes, it's rather pleasant. Uh, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. For some people, it's more there than for others. So um, if there's not so much of that, you can still have very, very deep samadhi and wisdom. So, but there, there can be a certain kind of bliss. It's one of the reasons that we get attached to samadhi, because it can be quite pleasant. Anyone notice pleasure in samadhi, at least at some points? Yeah, most of us. And so we find that it's one of the reasons that we want to keep on doing it, it feels good, there's peace, there can be sometimes bliss. And um, generally at this stage, don't worry too much about getting attached to it. <laughs> just, just develop it. <laughs> I'll come back to that, that point. And then a fourth uh, quality that gets developed when we, get, when we uh, practice samadhi uh, is called sukha, which is a kind of uh, happiness or contentment it's a little bit lighter than the PT or the, the joy or rapture. It's a little more subdued, but it's, there's a general sense of well-being that is developed with samadhi practice. Again, we may have felt that at times. How many people felt some, at least for a while, some sense of contentment? Oh, I'm content just doing this, right? So that's a natural development in the practice. And the last... Uh, quality that's named in the traditional model is that of one-pointedness, that we develop increasing capacity just to stay with the object to the point where we, this is getting close to what later tradition was called the access concentration, where we just stay or in kind of like a groove with the object. And eventually it becomes effortless. So sounds good? You've signed up, been doing the practices. It's not always easy, right? <laughs> there are challenges to samadhi practice and we probably could, I probably could stop giving the talk and just ask everyone, what was challenging about the, the day? I mean, we've already looked at what were some of the uh, wonderful experiences, some of the insightful or blissful experiences, yes, that, but also challenges. And I, I thought I would name uh, five different challenges and then talk about how to work with each of them. That'll be the bulk of the rest of the talk. What are the challenges of samadhi practice and how do we work with them? And then I'll talk a little bit about the, at the end about how further the samadhi practice connects what, with what we'll be doing later in the retreat. So, here are the five, uh, five challenges. Uh, the first is having an overly active mind. How many had that at some point today? Okay. okay. I saw about two-thirds of the people raise their hands, so the other one-third could come up and give the rest of my talk. No, no. <laughs> 
but uh, no, it's probably for almost all of us. Overly active mind, distracted mind at times, right? A second challenge is sleepiness and low energy, and particularly on the first or second day of a retreat. How many had sleepiness or low energy at times? Okay, yeah. And a third challenge is that as we practice uh, samadhi, there are sometimes are things which just keep on coming up in our mind that uh, samadhi has the aspect of what we sometimes call purification. That material that in Western terms we would call uh, unconscious, material that's beneath the surface tends to bubble up. And that can be both freeing, but it also can be challenging. A fourth challenge is that we can get attached to being in uh, with uh, samadhi. We can get attached to states of samadhi. And as I mentioned, uh, at this point, it's good to talk about it, but it not, may not be a huge issue. And the fifth one is actually one that, that I did talk about this morning. The fifth challenge for many of us is that it's hard uh, it's hard to do samadhi practice without a certain amount of striving and over-efforting. And that's very common for many of us, certainly part of my background. How many people found your effort a little bit unbalanced towards the overly effortful today? Yeah, yeah. so it's not, not for everyone, but for, for many of us. So I'll talk about each of these and uh, talk about how to work with them. And we may bring... Uh, some of the guidance on the challenges into the, uh, into the morning, into the morning instructions. So I don't need to say too much about the fact that our minds can be very, very active and hard to, hard to bring under some degree of control. That the mind may be just going on and on. Again, some of us may have had a lot happening before the retreat. Sometimes we, uh, in a way, have to become a little bit crazy in order to go to a retreat. Anyone experience that? (laughs) You know, you have to get everything done, go a little bit half mad in order to find sanity at a retreat. It's a little bit, the the irony is there, right? Right? But, uh, But nonetheless, we live in a culture, of course, which is uh, very oriented towards the cognitive, for better and worse. And we live in a culture which has a lot of thinking. A lot of us may be a lot of the day on electronic devices, which are mostly in the cognitive realm. And so the habits are strong, right? I don't need to say much more about that. Uh, How to work with that in samadhi practice. You know, we can see how uh, samadhi and a certain degree of mindfulness work together because we have to, you know, we have to have this capacity to be able to know when we're not doing samadhi practice, when our mind has wandered. That's what we could call a capacity of mindfulness. And I mentioned this morning that some of the brain studies show that the people who make the deepest, uh, uh, have the deepest development in samadhi have both the capacity for samadhi in itself, but also the capacity to track what is occurring in the mind carefully, which is a different part of the brain. 
actually, than the capacity just to concentrate, just to focus. And so we, you know, our mindfulness really helps us, you know. And so sometimes if we have some really, really uh, familiar repetitive thoughts, as in our mindfulness practice, it can be helpful just to name them, at least in our initial practice, which can help us in a way to notice them more quickly, sooner after they arise. We want to try to notice them. So giving a name to our most common visitors can be helpful. You know, eventually we don't need that, but in the short run that can be helpful. Having a, a strong intention to really stay with the object can, very be, can be very helpful as well. You know, part of our mind may think, oh, a little bit of spare time. Why not resolve my three major unresolved issues? What an opportunity. <laughs> right? Anyone find yourself dealing with major unresolved issues? Right? And so natural, very common, but it helps to have clarity of intention. And again, to work with intention as we, as we brought out in the instructions so that you really know what you're doing. Sometimes it's very skillful when you notice a repetitive pattern to be firm and say something like, uh, not now, much as if you would be... Uh, Training a puppy. Say, not now. <laughs> you know, and it's interesting because, you know, when we, we have a lot of time on our hands, right, for the samadhi practice, the mind has a lot of opportunities. And I, I, I have felt sometimes for myself doing samadhi practice, particularly with repetitive thoughts, sometimes I would just try to really summon like a kind of um, strong and fiery energy. Like I would bring images of being a tiger you know, at the beginning of a sitting and say, I will, I will really stay with this. And when those thoughts come, mm, 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 I'm not going there. And I have like this fiery energy that for me, it really worked. It really, it, uh, the repetitive thoughts had less power when I could do that. So saying not now or saying later, uh, doing that at times with your, with your repetitive thoughts can be quite helpful. Um, you know, in the long run, body practices can be very helpful. The qigong, doing body practices, doing things which settle the body, very, very crucial for settling the mind, you know, here at the retreat and, and at home. And again, the, the, the various techniques that I gave in the instructions related to counting, naming the, uh, naming the parts of the breath, working with the pause between the out-breath and the in-breath, all of these can be very helpful tools to work with the repetitive uh, thoughts. Okay, sleepiness and low energy. Again, we've looked at that some in some of the instructions and responses to uh, questions. Um, it's especially an issue, again, in the first or second day. Typically, it shifts for many of us. Um, and again, sometimes it can be, we can be sleepy for the reason of needing sleep. And that may be the case if you were very sleep deprived right before coming here, or sometimes for many of us, uh, you know, being in a new place, it's sometimes hard to sleep the first night. You know, that's, that's quite common. Uh, and so uh, sometimes it is, especially in the first day, related to a need for sleep, and then by all means get the sleep you need, right? And a lot of the sleepiness, though, 
is related to um, just that going inward, being in this um, mode that's very different from how we've been. And there can, again, can be an association with closing the eyes, with going to sleep. Uh, There can be a way that the energy is a little bit unbalanced. So some of the remedies might be to do qigong, uh, during the walking period, if you get really sleepy, take a vigorous walk. Try to keep the practice going, but get, get more energy into the system. That can, be, that can be very helpful at times. So, uh, you know, in some cases, we may have actually a fair amount of, of samadhi, but the energy is low, and that will, that will manifest as sleepiness. Sometimes it also manifests as a state of mind that we have a technical term for, we call it sinking mind, which is an imbalance where there is uh, more concentration than energy. And we get into this very dreamlike, somewhat pleasant state, which is very, has a very vague sense of what we're focusing on. And some people sometimes think, this is it. <laughs> and anyone know that state of mind? Yeah. Pleasant, dreamlike, but not really very precise or clear, okay? And again, if that would be the case, we would, we would up the energy level, typically. And again, could be a vigorous walk, qigong. Sometimes we can do that internally by giving a little more energy to the connecting with the object, a little more, put a little more energy into just really connecting with the breath, focusing on the breath. Uh, again, very crucial to know that the sleepiness is normal. In fact, everything I'm describing here is normal, and we encounter, anyone who does samadhi practice for, for very long encounters all of these, and we have to work with them. So very, very normal. Again, uh, if we're sleepy, we can uh, stand up in the hall, um, you know, stand up, sit back down. Generally, it's helpful if we were having sleepiness as an issue to have moderation in our eating, not to eat too much. That will... That will that will help as well. Uh, the third challenge that I'm naming is that of uh, the fact that samadhi practice sometimes involves, often involves, a dimension of what we call purification, where residues of our own experience, of our own habitual tendencies, patterns, some of them more conscious, some of them more unconscious, Uh, come to the surface. Of course, this happens a lot in uh, mindfulness practice as a whole, and probably many of us have had such experiences in the retreats we've done. You know, many of you have done quite a number of retreats. Most of you have done quite a number of retreats, and you've experienced something like this in the retreats where material that we could call unconscious comes up. Again, it could be grief. It could uh, could be anger, right? we may develop this very, very strong anger maybe towards someone in the retreat, probably in the other retreat. (laughs) You know, for something, you know, you know, something that typically would seem minor, right? That that person didn't hold the door open for me. This meditation, what are they doing? We can, so we can find sometimes anger, we can sometimes find things appearing in our dreams. Often on retreats, there's a very active dream life. 
Yeah. And sometimes in samadhi retreats, if the dream life is more intense than on non-samadhi retreats. I notice this especially in the meta retreat, that we have people have wild dreams. And they're, you know, they sometimes report and come in and talk about, you know, God, last night I, I murdered, you know, six people. <laughs> you know. What does this say about my true nature? <laughs> So, okay, normal purification practice process, just stay with it, right? And so just to know that there can be a certain volatility uh, in the dream life and in, in, a, in our minds and hearts, right? And that would be normal. Not, doesn't always occur, and, but it can occur, you know, that we, we can um, uh, know that that could be part of the normal process uh, of practice. Sometimes the purification occurs at the level of the body. We may sometimes feel knots, energetic knots in our body. We may hang out with it. I hung out for a long amount of time with a sense of contraction around my heart. Maybe that maybe many of you, how many have had something similar to that? It's rather common. And so these, some of this appears in retreats in general, but they can appear uh, especially in samadhi retreats. So again, how to work with this, mostly to know that it's normal and work pretty much with the instructions that have been given. If something, if, you know, if they're really extreme dreams, don't worry too much about them. You know, it's, it's normal, there's a normal process. If material comes up, again, that lasts for a longer period of time, you can bring, for example, to something like grief or Anger, if that is there and just in a very, uh, what, enduring way, is staying for a while. You can use mindfulness practice. If it's um, very strong, you can also hold it with compassion and do sometimes do compassion practice or metta practice with what, what comes up like that. Um, there's a lot more I think I could say about that and maybe we'll, maybe we'll bring, that out, bring that out further. Not to necessarily think that this has to happen. Or to think at the end of the retreat, gosh, there wasn't much purification. My retreat is a failure. No, not really so. It's really, uh, I think we, we, we've all done enough retreats, so we know that going into a retreat is like going into the unknown, and we, it's, uh, we don't know what we'll encounter. But sometimes that's there, and it can be a challenge. Fourth, challenge to samadhi practice is becoming attached to, uh, to some of the pleasure and bliss of samadhi. And as I mentioned, this may be something that you say, the other problems, the other challenges, I don't like them so much, but this challenge I'll take on. <laughs> give, me, give me deep samadhi states so I can get attached, <laughs> right? And so, uh, but it, do, it does happen sometime. And there, you know, particularly if you have gifts for samadhi, you can, it, it sometimes happens that people get really attached and, and don't want to go into insight because the samadhi is so pleasant. And I think I, that occurred to me at a certain point where I just loved the samadhi so much that I hung out there. And it can be connected with what we sometimes call spiritual bypassing. 
you know, where we actually get so attached to a beautiful state that we don't let the natural organic process of development occur. We sort of shut it off by focusing on something that we really like in meditation. So we have to look out for that some. And, and, you, and you could notice it by a certain grasping after it, after the samadhi maybe, you know, maybe even here we might notice it in that, oh, I really want to get to where I was two sittings ago. Okay, what did I do? And we can, you know, it's one thing to aspire and just try to be skillful. It's another thing to be grasping. So we want to look out for that. Um, One of the signs might be that we focus so much on samadhi practice, again, that we don't want to do the insight practice. We don't want to use the samadhi as a means to an end. So just look if that's developing uh, in you, mostly into any tendencies to grasp or to want. And it's very connected with the last challenge I want to talk about some, which is the challenge that we, I mentioned in the morning at some length, which is the challenge of over-striving or over-efforting. And I think this is one that um, is deeply rooted in the psyches of many of us, and certainly something that I've worked with a lot, especially doing a lot of samadhi practice. And it's um, connected with a kind of a paradox, which is that uh, we're promised certain uh, benefits when we do samadhi practice. And we're also told that a key to developing samadhi is to really relax, right? And so this kind of a paradox, like I really want this, but in order to get it, I have to let go of the wanting, right? And there can be a kind of a internal paradox there. Do you see that? That we um, have to, in a sense, skillfully move in a certain direction, but let go of some of that striving. And that's hard for a lot of us. A lot of us have found that we succeed in life by really striving, you know, by really doing, by really getting at it, by really being goal-oriented. And there's a way that we have to relax that. And if we don't really relax that, we can suffer. You know, I, I know that for myself, in doing samadhi practice, there were times when I uh, didn't get the results I wanted, and I suffered. And it actually was, there was a very significant moment in my own development of samadhi when I was about to do uh, a longer samadhi retreat. And I heard that teachers whom I really, really respected had made very little progress in developing samadhi. And these were people who I knew and really respected. And something in me just let go and I said, I don't care what happens, I'm gonna do my best and just let things be as they are. And somehow, I don't know whether it was my comparison with people, you know, it gets into the psychology here, but there was something that I was able just to let go, relax, do my best, and that combination of totally putting out skillful effort, but not overly grasping, it's not easy. And again, for many of us, we only learn this by suffering, I'm sorry to say. 
because it's it's in our it's kind of hardwired into a lot of us that we that I I'm a doer right I'm a I'm a doer you know and uh, I think in my my family condition was to be do a doer and a planner and this is a, a recipe for some degree of suffering with samadhi practice right so so sometimes we have to unlearn that if you could unlearn it by by simply accepting what I'm saying. And just letting it go, that would be great, but it's highly unlikely that it would work that way. <laughs> we kind of have to learn by experience. But knowing that is helpful because at the moment comes when you suffer enough that you're willing to let go, then you'll say, oh, they were right. <laughs> right. So what we can do is really look to that balance of uh, relaxation, what I was calling this morning, relaxation and persistence. And again, keep on asking ourselves, uh, can ask ourselves first, what are my own tendencies? Do I tend more to be a doer? Do I tend more on the over-efforting side? Or do I tend more on the not efforting enough? And so if we have some sense of our own patterns, we can try to guide ourselves and just give us the gui- give ourselves the guidance maybe the guidance is um yeah um keep staying with it but really relax and for some of us it might be saying really stay with it and just give ourselves that guidance really stay with it for others the staying with it might be a given and then we say just relax <laughs> just relax you know keep keep with it but really relax and so we do, we do need both. We need both that active, a, active kind of effort that keeps staying with it, but we also need the relaxation that can, in, in a receptive way, just be with the breath or whatever we're following and just let it be. So we need both and we need to balance them. So I wanna uh, finish by just saying a few words about the relationship of the samadhi practice, a little further, a few further words about the relationship of the samadhi practice to the insight practice and the spacious awareness. There are ways in which the um, samadhi practice naturally opens up into both of those forms. Sometimes when we stay with the samadhi, you know, if we're staying with the breath, we may start to notice the breath and the mind may be quiet enough so that we start to notice the changing nature of the breath. And we, we may be aware of the continual changes in the breath and the mind can just be with them. And so there's a way in which the deepening of samadhi opens up into insight practice very naturally. Also, we, off, we again, in the tradition, we develop the samadhi and then turn it, as, as we'll do in this retreat, towards changing phenomena. Sometimes we start with the breath, but we bring in all different kinds of phenomena. There's also a way in which as samadhi practice develops, it can sometimes, as the mind gets more quiet, we stay more with the object, it sometimes can open up to a kind of very vast awareness just by staying with the breath. It sometimes does that. And there are ways in which uh, 
Samadhi can be an entryway for what we sometimes call awakened awareness. In some traditions, I know some Tibetan traditions where one develops samadhi to a deep place and then you go into awakened awareness. You go into this vast awareness. You skip insight practice. We're not gonna do that, but it's it's, uh, possible. It's sometimes uh, done like that. From the Buddha. One who has gained mental calm in oneself, but not the higher wisdom of insight, should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. One who has already attained the higher insight, the higher wisdom of insight into things, but not develop samadhi, should make an uh, effort to develop the one and attain the other. One who has attained neither, (laughs) that might be us, (laughs) one who has attained neither samadhi nor the wisdom of deep insight, should put forth intense desire, effort, uh, exertion, impulse, obstruction, mindfulness, and attention for the attainment of these states. And I would add, relax about it. (laughs) Okay, so uh, it opens up in that way. So let me just close with, um, I'll close with a poem that I wrote uh, right after a period of doing samadhi practice. This is my own personal poem. Okay, I'll close with this. This ancient vocation of simplicity. Purity of heart is to will one thing, said Kierkegaard. The breath opens the doors to outer life and to inner light, where we may for a time reside in silence, stillness, and brilliant space, and be brought refined, renewed, revived, revisioned, back to the next sounds, steps, and sights of this journey home. We have about a half an hour for the uh, walking practice with Samadhi. And I think uh, tonight uh, at the nine o'clock sitting, we'll be doing uh, some further meta practice. And I think, um, I didn't talk about it with Susie, but I think we'll probably make the evening session a little shorter than usual, maybe half the length. So it might just be 15 minutes or so. So you can come back, do some metta, we'll finish early and we can uh, uh, just keep everything going. Yeah, okay. So thank you again for your attention and we'll uh, see you again at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.